Let's pray. Lord, help us this morning as we consider your word, as we consider this, what ultimately is a very, very important text. I pray that you will help us understand it, protect us from being distracted from the little bits and pieces that are in here, and help us to get focused on what it is that you are trying to communicate. And uh, Lord, I pray that you will be glorified and challenge us, encourage us, exhort us. We ask that your spirit will work mightily in us as you promised to do. So help us. In your name I pray. Amen. As I've been studying the book of Acts, and here we are in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse uh, 12 to the end of the chapter, um, a couple things have been happening in my thinking, and I just want to lay them out because I think it's, I think it's important to grapple with this. I certainly, what I'm about to share with you, certainly I would not at this point in time be dogmatic necessarily about, but um, just some things I've been chewing on uh, lately, and we're going to jump out of Acts for just a second in light of this, and that is over in 1 John chapter 5, there is a verse, it's probably one of the more famous verses, it's called probably the most famous verse of assurance that you can find anywhere. These things were written that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, I'll share this with Andrew briefly before the service. Um, I'm having a little transition of thinking in that passage, just a, a small transition. Um, I, I have rejected for a long time what most people do with that verse. Most people just throw, throw out the verse when someone's struggling with their eternal security or if they're really saved or not. Most people just throw that verse out and quote it. And I, my response has always been, well, in order to understand 1 John 5, you've got to ask yourself a really important question. That, that verse that is. You've got to ask yourself a really important question. The really important question is, what are these things? Because he says, these things are written that you may have eternal life. That you may know you have eternal life. And so the, the question when you hear that verse, it must be, what are, quote, these things that have been written? Correct? And for the longest time, I used to say, these things that John's referencing are the first five chapters of First John. But lately I've been thinking, as I've been thinking more globally about the scriptures, that John being the last writer, the last human author of scripture, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, um, that perhaps John is writing about something bigger than just 1st John when he says these things are written that you may have eternal that you may know you have eternal life. Perhaps when John said in 1st John 5, I think it's is it 13 or is it 7. You turned there 13. 1st John 5:13, that's right. 1st John 5:7 is a different issue. 1st um, John 5:13, perhaps what John is saying there, and I think it may very well be when he says these things are written that you may know you have eternal life, perhaps as the last human author what he's really talking about is the corpus of the entirety of what we now know as the 66 books. All the New Testament, both. He, he's saying, you want to know if you are saved? you want to know that you have eternal life? These things were written for this purpose, that you may know you have eternal life. But we camp on this idea of the word know, but really what John wants to do is camp on the idea of these things. In light of I bring this up because in light of today's study, it's becoming more and more clear to me that there is this really strong interaction between what we call the theology of God, 
But you want to say the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit. Uh, God, the theology of God, what God has revealed about himself in the scriptures, including not just what he's revealed about himself, but his plan and his will. And secondly, what he's revealed is who I am. Does that make sense so far? He's revealed who I am in my natural state in all of its entirety. He's revealed what it means to be a saved person in its entirety. He's revealed the, the, how you get saved. He's revealed the ramifications of salvation, the results of salvation, and the conclusion of salvation. Isn't that everything there? It's all there, isn't it? And we know none of that outside of the Scriptures. So I wonder if 1 John 5, verse 13, when he says, These things were written that you may know you have eternal life, perhaps, and I think most likely, is encapsulating the entirety of the Scriptures. The implication of John in 1 John 5, then, is it is essential that someone know the Scriptures. It's essential that someone who wonders if they're a saved person or not and that would include someone probably that, in fact, not probably, that would say, yes, I'm absolutely saved. That they know the scriptures, that they study the scriptures, that they dwell on the scriptures, to use the uh, Old Testament term, that they meditate on the scriptures, how much? Day and night, right? Uh, you hear these themes throughout the scriptures, and I wonder, and I think it's probably true, that whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, you want to know you're saved, the best place to go is the Scriptures. And certainly we recognize, and Andrew said that to me this morning before church, that would include the Old Testament too, right? I said, well, yeah, expanding on that, where do I learn about my sin primarily? Old Testament, Right? I mean, there's no clearer representation and explanation and declaration of sin than Old Testament. Isn't there? There's no place you can go more clear that shows our absolute inability to please God than the Old Testament, isn't it? Right? Now, certainly the New Testament carries that on. But the New Testament builds on what is revealed in the Old Testament. That, that is a striking uh, uh, description of my lostness. But there's also a striking, many, many striking declarations about savedness as well, or what it means to be saved. And oftentimes in the midst of all of these discussions that you find Old Testament and New Testament, here's what you will find. And Andrew, again, hope you don't mind me picking on you a little bit, but Andrew pointed out it even started right after the fall. Didn't it, Andrew? When did, what, what was the illustration you gave? Cain and Abel. You have a godly one and an ungodly one. The contrast is there, isn't it? Right in the beginning. Godly Abel, ungodly Cain. It just jumps off the page, doesn't it? And you find that throughout the Old Testament. You find these examples popping up everywhere. The discussions of David and Ahithophel. <laughs> I mean, you see them everywhere. And, David, and, and many other examples. <clears throat> You come to the New Testament, you find the same thing, don't you? It's always a study in contrast. Even in the book of Acts, what do we have? We have Acts chapter 2, amazing stuff going on in this, in this church situation in Acts 2, 42 to 47. It's beautiful, the evidence that people are saved, isn't it? Isn't it? It's stunning. 
In Acts chapter 3, it's continuing. Acts chapter 4, it's continuing. And then Acts chapter 5, we get the contrast, don't we? What's the contrast in Acts 5? Anybody remember? Ananias and Sapphira. And then in Acts chapter 6, we get another contrast, don't we? A tighter contrast, because in Acts chapter 6, we find the contrast between... Anybody remember? We haven't gotten there yet, I know, but if you've been reading it all, Stephen and the Hellenized Jews causing all the conflicts, right? Thank you. you got the contrast between Stephen and all these wrong-headed people that are called Hellenized Jews in the text in Acts chapter 6, causing all sorts of problems in the church. You see this contrast between godliness and ungodliness established over and 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 over again. These things were written that you may know you have eternal life. Because you see, as I'm reading this and thinking about it, it seems to me that what we find is teaching about the contrast, but then we also see examples of the contrast between what it means to be saved and what it means to be lost. That's what we find. Even, even as late as in Paul's life, we come to um, the, uh, the book of 2 Timothy, and we get a contrast between Paul. I have, what does he say at the very end in, Acts chapter, in um, 2 Timothy chapter 4? I have, I've, what was the first one? Fought the good fight, run the race, kept the faith, right? And right after that, he talks about who? Demas. He talks about Demas just a couple of verses later. <laughs> contrast. And right around that same context, he talks about the whole Asian church has left him. And then he, has, he throws out the contrast again. But John Mark, he's valuable to me. Contrast. You come to Second uh, Peter, and the contrasts are really clear between those who are glorifying God under persecution and those who aren't. And you see that even clearer in the book of Jude, do you not? You got people who are hidden, hidden reefs, and they're love feasts. And on the other side, you have people that God enables to glorify Him all the way through. Then you come to even Revelation two and three, the seven churches. Do you not have descriptions throughout those seven churches of those who have eternal life and those who do not? It's it's everywhere throughout the Old and New Testament. This this idea of a contrast in teaching. Contrast in example, and today we have a, a contrast in example with teaching. So let's look at it. We'll read the whole text, and then we'll walk our way through it. And the reason why I'm bringing this up before we start reading is because in Acts chapter 1, 12 to the end of the chapter, the classic thing that everybody gets caught up in is what do you think, if you've already looked at the text. Anybody, anybody that's already looked at the text, perhaps? What's the one thing everybody gets caught up in in the text? Picking a twelfth disciple, right? Deciding between two people and deciding to go with Matthias. And the big argument is, should they have done that or shouldn't they have done that? You know what? We're not even going to go there. Because that's not the point of the story. It just isn't. Matthias is not the point of the story. Now, we could get data elsewhere to answer the question, I think, but we're not going to do that today. I will say this, I, you know, just to throw it out there, since, I just, since the question came up, yeah, I do think they needed to choose 12. That's my opinion. But be that as it may, we're not going to even look at that during the course of the message this morning. We're going to look at what is being taught. So starting in verse 12 of chapter 1, <clears throat> Luke writes this, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, 
which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the disciples, among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Akadelma. That is, the field of blood. For it is written the book, in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. And... Let another take his office. <clears throat> so, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, <clears throat> and I'm sorry, who was also was called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us one of these two you have chosen to take the place of in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven disciples. So that's our text for this morning. We could camp on the whole issue of the, of the choosing. Uh, again, I'm not going to go there. We're going to briefly talk through that section. But we want to see the two things that are really being taught in this text and what I believe Luke is really trying to drive toward. Let me just say this ahead of time. I mentioned about 1 John 5.13 being this text that says, These things are written, you may know you have eternal life. I would argue, as we, st as we said during the introduction, when we talked about the recipient of this letter, if you remember, we said that the guy's name was, or the person's name, or whoever it is, name was what? Theophilus. And Theophilus means lover of God. Now, my argument is, I believe that the lover of God is a term that is generic. It's not about a specific person. It is a term written to lovers of God. Personally. So it's in the first person singular. Literary technique. But if that is true, if my theory on that is true, then the idea is you could argue that what, and it makes sense, that Acts is written for a really important purpose. To help you and I, the reader, to evaluate if we are a lover of God. I would argue Acts again, or Luke again, is the same thing. And we, you know, globally, we saw in First John the idea that perhaps it's the entire scriptures. But the idea, I think, is that the Book of Acts is not, as we have said so often throughout history, that it is a history book of the establishment of the 
church as we know it today, but quite to the contrary, it serves a really important theological purpose. That as we learn about the early church, as we learn about the apostles' ministry, as we learn about other people's ministry, that we wrestle with something. Am I a lover of God? Are you a lover of God? And that's where we find ourselves today. So again, going back to verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 12, the ascension has taken place, verses 6 through 11, and as God told them, as Christ told them to do, verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. It's about 3,000 feet. That's, according to Old Testament law, it's about as far as they could go. Um, and uh, so they go to uh, their place, now this place, uh, that verse 13 explains that when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. That could very well be the same upper room that the Last Supper took place in. In fact, it most likely is. Um, it's a large room. Obviously, it had to be a large because the scriptures tell here in a little bit that there was 120 up in that room. Very large room. And so there was a group of people up there. So they go up there and list who these people are. And so we get that list, which we're not going to wade our way through. You can read those yourself. Verse, uh, but you will notice, it's interesting, initially it lists those people, and then it says in verse 14 that there were women there, plural, and uh, Mary also, the mother of Jesus, was there, and also, who else was there? His brothers were there. And by the way, brothers, in the Greek, it's a Delphoi. It could be feminine or uh, masculine. It could be either one. So there may have been sisters as well. It can be understood brothers, sisters. So it could be either one. But it is plural. So seemingly with these brothers here, and the brothers here most likely are referring to literal genetic brothers, relatives, brothers, sisters, um, seemingly after the resurrection, there must have been some brothers, sisters that repented and believed because we know in John chapter 7 that the uh, his brothers were skeptics and not believers. They denied his godness. They denied he was God. They denied he was the Redeemer. Um, and so they were skeptics. Something obviously changed because they are here in the upper room with the twelve, with the women, with Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus. What's important in this text that we just read, however, is the part that I skipped over in verse 14. They come to the upper room, and verse 14 says, All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. That is an interesting statement. They just watched Jesus ascend back to heaven, which had been, he said he was going to, did he not? I'm going to go. And prepare a place for you. And then when I return, I'll take you to be with me so that where I am, you'll be there forever, right? And then after he left, of course, the two men in white last, last week we saw, they said, what are you gazing up in heaven for? He's going to come back just like he left. You already know that. He's going to come back. So the implication in that text from last week is, remember what he told you. And so they do get it. They leave. They go back to the upper room. And they stay there because he promised them. He said, stay in Jerusalem for a little while. Correct? 
and then you will receive the Holy Spirit with power. So they go. That's the only, the only uh, um, instructions Jesus gave at this point in time. It's to go. Wait. But it's interesting. These are people who believe in Jesus, correct? There are people who believe in I'm giving you hints there. There are people who believe in Jesus, right? Yeah, okay. There are people who believe that he's God. There are people who believe that he was crucified for their sins. He believe, they believe that he is God, Redeemer, Messiah, who resurrected from the dead. They believe he's a God who walked among them after his ascension. They're a God who believe he ascended back to glory, back to heaven. They believe this. They would therefore be classified as what? Believers, or in light of Acts chapter 1, they'd be classified as what? Theophilus. They'd be classified as lovers of God. Correct? But it's interesting, they come back to Jerusalem. Now, they, uh, the disciples already had the Holy Spirit breathed upon them by Jesus, correct? But he doesn't. they, they don't have him with power that they're going to have in a little bit. That's what Jesus promised. In a little bit, he's going to come upon you with power. They have the Holy Spirit, but that New Testament power is yet to come at this point. It's going to come next chapter. But the Holy Spirit has come upon them. Seemingly, it's come upon the rest of them as well. Because it's interesting how they are described. Remember, we're wrestling with who is the lover of God? And the description we have of these lovers of God, 120 it says in a little bit, 120 of them gathered in the upper room, the description is that they're doing what? They're what? They're praying, aren't they? That's an intriguing statement. We're going to get to that in a second. They're praying. They came together. Now, I want you. it's really important that we put ourselves in, in their situation. For three years plus, they've been walking with Jesus. Who's been doing the miracles? Jesus has. Who's been doing the teaching? Jesus has. Who's been doing, for the most part, the public pro proclamation? Jesus has. Who's the ones who ran away? The disciples. Who's the one who denied? Peter. How many disciples were at the, at the cross? One. John. And a couple women. Who went back fishing? Peter. I mean, they're not, they're not stellar people, are they? They're not stellar people. But in this initial point, I want you to put yourself in their shoes. You've been through a lot, haven't you? I mean, in your mind, would you not think they killed Jesus? What would it matter if they killed his followers? What does that make? Right? But they gathered together anyway. That's kind of intriguing to me. And the implication is they were there for a long time. 
because they continued to do this. It sounds like they kind of resided there for a few days, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like they came for for an hour of prayer meeting and they went back to their place and went to their jobs and did this, that, something else. It sounds like 120 people gathered together for an incredibly long, extended period of time. Now, I'm sure they made meals and ate and you know got some sleep, that type of thing. But for an incredibly extended period of time, these people came together and waited. And while, while being together and waiting, they, they prayed. And we know there's a supernatural thing because when was the last time you got 120 people together that are Christians and they all agreed on stuff? Right? I and mean, it just doesn't happen. But the scriptures say here they're all of what? One mind, one accord. They're all in agreement of something, aren't they? They're all in agreement on something. I wonder what the one thing they're in, what the things are they're in agreement of. I wonder. Well, we know one. We know a couple things, right? We're already talking about Jesus being God, right? He's Redeemer. He's conquered sin, Satan, and death. He set them free. However much they understood of all that, we don't know the completion of it. But they're getting it, aren't they? They wouldn't be there in the, in the face of potential death. And mockery and ridicule and all the rest that could come down the path. So we know they're in accord with regard to who Jesus is at some level. Can I submit a few other things they're in accord about? They're in accord, they're in agreement, they're of one mind that God has made promises. And that he keeps his promise. Now, Understand, that agreement, that understanding, that one-mindedness is not like we think about one-mindedness. I'm trying to expand our understanding here. That's not how we think about one-mindedness today. Like, Ken and I can be of one mind about something, he goes his way and I go my way, no problem, right? We can still be of one mind. No, this is a one-mindedness that drew people where? Together. It's a one-mindedness that bonded people together. For extended period of time. Who Christ is locked these people together. Does that make sense? It tied them together. There was a bond between them. That is dramatic. And it's just going to get more dramatic as we work through the book of Acts. You have a bond between these people based upon who Christ is. You've got a bond between these people, one accord with regard to what God has promised. They're in agreement with God's promises to them. We're going to talk about some of those in just a little bit. Can I add another one to it as well? They're of one accord with regard to God's, that is God Christ's, commands. They're in agreement with regard to Christ, some of Christ's commands that we can recognize in the text. What were you going to say, Rusty? Yeah, yeah promises, absolutely. They're, they're, and these, these agreements, these one-mindedness is literally binding them together. 
by the way, if I could just point this out, because Acts chapter 2, the, the church comes together in a powerful way, whether you believe that, that the scripture, uh, that, that the church started in Acts chapter, or Genesis chapter 12, or Acts chapter 2 is irrelevant to the discussion. What you have here is a, a beautiful picture of what happens between believers, true believers. If I may put it this way, because back then they built everything with stone. And God talks about the house of God, right? The church being the house of God, the temple of the Lord. In between stones are what? What is it? Mortar, right? And what does that mortar do for the stones? It bonds them together. Their identity is lost as an individual stone in a way, isn't it? It's lost in, in that bigger thing, the temple of God. So the picture is really stunning when you start to think about that being of one accord. And I, I bring that up because it is interesting, before we get into tighter into the context, is I find most often today in the church, what we find, I mean the church generic, us included, is that, you ever notice that we can be of one accord, but it's like the mortar's missing? Do you ever notice that? We could be of one accord, but it's like there's no more mortar there. And what happens with building if you try to build it with no mortar, typically? It's not going to last, is it? If you don't believe that, drive around Chester County, and you, I'm not talking about buildings anymore, drive around Chester County and look at all the fallen down walls that divide farmlands. Right? It doesn't last long, does it? It just falls to pieces into a rubble, doesn't it? So it happens. No mortar. But mortar in between it lasts a whole lot longer, doesn't it? That's my point. It's like these people had, they, they had one accord and it was a mortar that held them together. Is it really one accord if it doesn't hold us together is the point I'm trying to say. And so as we continue to look at verse 14, all these with one accord were what? What does it say? Devoting themselves, it's interesting the words, devoting themselves to prayer. What does the King James say, Jim? 112. I'm sorry, um, 114. Okay, continuing in prayer and supplication. Continuing, devoted to. It's an ongoing, continuous thing. People, because they, they find themselves together on important things, the most important things, find themselves drawn to what? Pray. Draw, they find themselves, the only thing, for these early Christians, the only thing that made sense. If we have one accord on these truths, on the commands, on the promises... On who Christ is, the only thing that makes sense is to what? Pray. For them, that's the only thing that made sense. Now, I think that we cannot argue in this text that John was over in this corner, and Peter was over in that corner, and James was over in that corner, and Matthias kind of crawled into that corner over there, and Simon the Zealot, he went to the bathroom. He figured he'd pray there. And they're all praying privately. I don't think we're going to argue that here. 
Can we? They're all together. They're praying together. It's one of the one of the biggest things I see that 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 I find in the church is people who don't pray together. If I may just say this, Rusty, our meeting we had a couple weeks ago over at the coffee shop. You know what the biggest blessing for me was? Staying on the street afterwards and praying with you. That was awesome. Just staying on the street and praying. And we had a great time, didn't we? That was wonderful. It's one of the evidences here. Are we lovers of God? Well, what what is it? What are they doing? Because they're in agreement, they're what? Devoting themselves to prayer. Long, extended, deep, abiding prayer. Can I just submit to you, the average Christian in America today, I used a bunch of words there. The average Christian in America today would not even understand what that even looks like. Now, I'd submit to you that this is one of the things that Luke is arguing. This is what a lover of God is. He's caught up in prayer. He's caught up in this. She's caught up in this. With others. With other people. It's not just a private prayer life. No, it's, it's a corporate prayer life. Let me just stay on verse 14 for a second to ask a really important question. What do you think, you don't have to answer out loud, what do you think they're praying about? See, it's really important we ask that question, isn't it? It's really important because they're praying. They're praying a real long time. We just had a study in prayer. So I don't want to go too long in that, but we, they just had a study. They, we just had that study in prayer. We talked about biblical praying and where the focus should be. What do you think they're praying about? It's a really easy answer. You know the really easy answer is? The first really easy answer is? Here's the really easy answer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's next? Thy kingdom come, will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and live not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then if we're good Protestants, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Does that mean that they probably just quoted the Lord's Prayer over and over and over again? No. But I can, I can guarantee you they're praying reflected that. We've talked about it before, so I don't want to dive into it any deeper. Yes? Now, don't steal my thunder here, Jim. Don't steal my thunder. <laughs> We're going to get there. But I, get, I guarantee you, though, at the same time, I hope none of you heard what Jim says because he's stealing my thunder, except for his daughters. They're over there snickering at me. Um, I guarantee you when they gathered together for prayer, one of the biggest things that popped in their heads immediately was what? The foundational thing was when you pray, pray in this way. Jesus teaching on prayer. Right? And we don't have time to go through all that, except we've talked about it before, except it's all about God's glory. 
a focus on God's glory. That's, but, but I suspect that, that, was their, that they were working on making sure that their pattern of prayer was that. I'm being generic, but that's the focus. That's it. Right there. Lord's Prayer, as we call it. What else were they praying for? It, I mean, it's quiet. The scriptures don't tell us exactly what they prayed at this point. But I can guarantee you what they were praying about if they were truly following the Lord's Prayer, which I believe they probably were. They were probably praying about things like Matthew 28, which is repeated in Mark, Luke, and John. Because he just said it just recently, didn't he? Correct? Just 40 days earlier, or 43 or 44 days earlier, what did he say? I'm sorry, no, it was just a few days earlier, actually. I'm taking it back. Whoop, this is right before his ascension. So he just said it to him. All authority, all power has what? Been given unto me. As you're going, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And by the way, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. Do you think maybe they were praying about that? I think probably they were praying things like, if I may just throw this out here, they were probably praying things like, God, we know you promised to be with us, even though you've left us. But you promised to be with us, and you told us, we're going to get to the Spirit in just a second. There it is, right? And you told us that all authority and power has been given unto you. If that's true, that all authority and all power have given, been given unto you, God, then that means there's no other power or authority, right? Anything that looks like power, authority, is not power and authority. Because all power and authority has been given to Jesus. God, help us to remember that. Does that make sense that he'd pray that way? That these people would pray that way? In the midst of this fear, right? And elsewhere the scriptures talk about during this time they were afraid. God, help us. Help us to remember that you have all power and all authority because we see with our eyes. Don't we? We see with our eyes. Help us to see with the eyes of our heart instead. The truth of the matter is that they wield no power. You, all authority, all power. Help us to remember that. Bring that to remembrance. Always. Because we fear. Help us to remember. Can I just throw this out? I suspect all those that were burned at the stake during the Reformation era that was probably big in their heart too, wasn't it, don't you think? Flames are hot. Crowd was hateful. God helps remember that all authority, all power belongs to you. And just like Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you have authority and power over those flames to do as you see fit. Right? Does that make sense? So help us to remember. And in remembering who you are, all power and all authority, help us to remember your call in our lives. Open our eyes to see that the fields are what? White for harvest. Help us to see the harvest. It's too easy to see something else, isn't it? Isn't it? Too easy to not see as a harvest, right? Help us to see the, the fields are white on the harvest and help us to see those who need Christ, who need you. So that we can do what? 
make disciples. Right? And teach them. I suspect that they were praying <clears throat> most likely they were praying verse 8 of Acts chapter 1. There are many other things as well, but this is what Jim brings up. What does he say in verse 8? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I suspect they were praying, God, you said that just in a little while the Spirit's going to come upon us with power. We can't do this without you. I can't do this without you. I need your promised power that the Holy Spirit's bringing. Bring the power. Bring what you've promised. What was that, Jim? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Bring the power. Bring the Holy Spirit transforming power that you've promised so that I will see and so that I will be. Because I, I can't do this on my own. I need you to do this. I suspect since he said in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria the othermost part of the earth, I suspect one of the consuming parts of their prayer wouldn't surprise me at all if as they were praying for the Holy Spirit's power, they were thinking about people, individuals in Jerusalem. And maybe if some of them, they knew people in Judea and Samaria. I'm sure they did. They'd been to Judea and Samaria many, many, many times. And you know as well as I do, what happened, if you think it through in the storyline, in the triumphal entry, there were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people lining the road, weren't there? And they were all crying out what? Hosanna, save us now! Isn't that what they are crying out to Jesus? And then just a few days later, what happened? They all left him. Who are these people that are leaving him? The people of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Primarily, aren't they? They all leave him. There's only a few left. And Jesus gets so bad, Jesus says to the disciples, you're going to leave me too. Right? The disciples knew many people in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. I suspect it would make complete sense to me that as they prayed through what God just told them, that as they're praying, one of the primary emphases of their prayer is, oh, in Jesus, in Jerusalem, there's Bill. I know Bill has heard about you. In fact, he saw you. In fact, he was at the, at the triumphal entry. Oh, they probably wouldn't call it the triumphal entry at that point. You get the idea. And Bill's not a good Jewish name anyway. At least as far as I know. <clears throat> God, I, I just think about Bill right now. When, when power comes and you've promised it in just a few days, I want to tell Bill about you. I want to tell Bill. That's what I want to do. Does that make sense? And then there's, there's Mary. I remember, well, I better not use Mary because Mary's there. Um, then there's Jane, another good Jewish name. I know Jane very well up there in Judea. I want to tell her about you because she's lost. And she needs redemption. 
So the Holy Spirit comes upon me, Lord, if there's any way, I want to tell Jane about you. Does that make sense? Does that, I mean, does that make sense? It does, doesn't it? What's guys? If they prayed for Malchus, I bet they didn't pray for his ear. That's the guy who lost his ear, right? I doubt they prayed for his ear. They probably prayed for his soul. I suspect the Roman soldiers that fell over dead at the tomb, as dead men at the tomb, wouldn't surprise me if the disciples prayed for them. You think maybe they prayed for the high priest? Maybe? Would it make sense? Wouldn't it? Yeah, I think that makes complete sense. For a lover of God to pray that way, wouldn't it? And you know what? I suspect that the prayers wouldn't be empty. Empty prayers. What I mean by empty prayers is, I'll pray the prayer, but, but the follow-through is like not even on my mind. Like, I'll pray for Bill, but there's no follow-through in my mind ever to go tell him about Jesus. Or the prayer, or to put it a different way, the prayer would not be about Bill with the idea that a month later, two months later, I'm still saying, yeah, I don't know if he's saved or not. I don't, I don't know. No, the prayer is such when the power comes, what? I gotta, I've been praying for Bill. I'm going to Bill. Does that make sense? I've been praying for Mary. No, Jane, sorry. I've been praying for Jane. I'm going to go see Jane. I want to talk to her about Jesus. I've, I've been doing all this preparatory praying for that. This is not empty exercise. This is, this is preparatory stuff, waiting for the power. Of course, when we look at the New Testament, we find out the power comes now when? When we're saved, right? The Holy Spirit brings the power. If you're saved, we have the power. It doesn't mean we don't ask the Holy Spirit to empower us. We do, all the time. Better be. But empowers for what? For Bill. For Jane. For Christ's glory. I suspect, if I may just continue the conversation, I suspect that the disciples' prayer and the 120 that are there, they're praying all of one accord, is all summed up in one thing. The 40 days of teaching that took place by Jesus. What, what did he talk to them about for, for 40 days? We saw it in the, in the scriptures already in Acts. For 40 days he instructed them regarding verse 3. What, what was he instructing them about for 40 days? The kingdom of God. I suspect that's exactly what they were praying about. And all these things we're talking about at this point in time is the grand summation of that, isn't it? Or this is the grand summation of that, of the kingdom of God stuff. That was the focus of their prayer. That was the consuming nature of their, of one accord, ongoing, seemingly almost continuous praying. A stunning difference from how we think about praying today, isn't it? In every way? Do you, do you hear it? 
Now, the point of this description in verse 14 of this group of people right after Christ goes and ascends back into heaven is they get together and pray this way for a number of days. And by the way, there's much indication after the day of Pentecost that this type of praying continued. If you don't believe that, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. It drips out of that passage. For example, and there's many other places in other books, as well as the book of Acts, that it shows up again and again and again. The point of this study is, the book is being written to Theophilus, lover of God. This is a description of lovers of God. And what Luke does, that the scriptures do over and over and over again, is he establishes a contrast. On the one hand, we have the lovers of God, and it continues in 15 and following as Peter gets up, and I just want to point things out to you. In those days, Peter stood up, so there's some talking going on along with the praying. I suspect, by the way, Peter was praying about this thing as well before he spoke. Does that make sense? Making sure that he's thinking biblically correct and saying, God, help me to understand this correctly. Help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. I'm looking at the scriptures. I want to make sure I'm understanding the Psalms correctly because this comes out of several passages in Psalms. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, and that brothers is referring to the, just the whole group, not just the actual genetic brothers. The company of persons is about 120. I doubt Mary had 120 sibling, uh, children. <laughs> give you a point. And said, brothers, verse 16, the scriptures had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became um, a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field, and we'll pick up on that in a few seconds. So Peter stands up and he declares, and you see later on he in verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, he mentions two different passages in the book of Psalms, that he interprets, and I think rightly so, as talking about Judas. They're kingly psalms. And the king has uh, an, uh, an opponent. And the opponent is Ahithophel. And the, the king is a picture of the messianic king. It is David, but David is a picture of the Messianic king. And in light of the picture of the Messianic king that you find throughout Psalms and all the kingly statements, you have the opponents, but the opponents, although they are physical human opponents of the king, they are pictures of the ultimate opponents uh, against the true royal king. Does that make sense? In this case, it's Judas. So what do we find? This lover of God loves what? Well, yes, he loves God, but the love of God loves what? It's evident he loves the scriptures, does he not? He's chewing on the Psalms. He's wrestling with the Psalms. There was no really, co uh, really cool books written on the already not yet time set time frame that he talked about last week. There were any real cool books talk talking about seeing Christ in the Old Testament. I couldn't go to the library or go to the bookstore and find a section on that. Of course, in the bookstores today, you still can't find a section on that. But that's a whole other issue. He wasn't listening to a podcast somewhere and maybe picked up on something. Here's a guy by the Spirit that was studying the Psalms. He was in-depth studying the Psalms. And he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, pre-real power coming, 
Acts 1.8, understood something. That when the Psalms were talking about David, they were talking about David as a type of Christ. And they were talking about David's opponents, they were talking about a type, in this case, a type of what would ultimately be Judas. And he got it. He got it. Unless you think that, that Peter was just this amazing theologian, I want to remind you, he was a fisherman. <laughs> he was a fisherman. This is spirit stuff. It happens because he's a lover of God. That's what happens. And in the midst of all this lover of God stuff that we find in the first half of this section, you are introduced right away in verse 15 and following by a different person. Aren't you? Who's the person you're introduced to? Judas. In the midst of all this discussion about lover of God, these are lovers of God, all of a sudden, out of the blue, in comes this amazing contrast set up by Peter. And I'm not saying that he was doing a contrast on purpose. That's what happened. What Peter wanted to do is Get the twelfth one replaced. But what do we find about Judas? Well, first of all, the scriptures talked about him. By the mouth of, of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who rested Jesus. So Jesus, Judas, although he, he hung out with Jesus for three years, learned from Jesus, ministered alongside Jesus, took care of all the finances, was sent out two by two along with the other eleven, to minister, correct? And helped with all the various activities of Jesus. He was on the boat when Jesus walked on the water, stilled the storm. What did Judas do? End of verse 16. He became a guide for those who hated Jesus, didn't he? Became a guide for those who hated Jesus. That's a pretty stunning statement, isn't it? Horrifying, isn't it? Clearly Judas is not a lover of God, is he not? He's clearly not. But before we get off verse 16, let, let's be careful that we don't put Judas in a totally different category. Because for Luke, the category is lover of God, not lover of God. Correct? Saved, unsaved, lover of God, not lover of God. The lovers of God are people who, in preparation for the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon them, are people who are praying of one accord. They're all caught up in Christ. They're all caught up in, in uh, remembering what Christ, who Christ is, remembering who, what Christ has promised, remembering Christ's commands, and praying in light of that, as, as well as, as we discover with Peter studying the Scriptures. Correct? And we see, again, we see that continue in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. The contrast is Judas, who is a guide for those who are going to arrest Jesus. Now, let me just simplify it. Because it sounds horrifying, doesn't it? He's a guide for, some, for the people who are going to arrest Jesus. Is nothing more than saying he's a guide for people to go anywhere but Jesus. Redemption. Isn't that it? 
Judas, is, is he guiding? Does Andrew guide people to Jesus? Well, yeah, for what purpose? God's glory, redemption. Judas, on the other hand, guides people to Jesus as well. But for what purpose? To arrest him. Right? It's nothing more than saying, on the one hand, we have these lovers of God who are all about glorifying God, praising God, worshiping God, praying to God, magnifying God, being all about his kingdom, praying for help, praying with regard to who he is, praying with regard to his commands, praying with regard to his promises, and Judas, who isn't doing those things. That's the real issue. And I know he's dead at this point. But before then, he wasn't that, was he? He appeared to be, but he wasn't. It's deceptive. You're right. It can be deceptive. But he wasn't after those things. And, and, and eventually he revealed himself, didn't he? See, we, talk, we like to think of it this way. There are those who are like chapter 1, verses 12 through, um, through the discussion uh, with Peter loving the scriptures. There's that group of people. And then there's the average Christians, right? And then there's the haters of God, Judas. That's why we like, we like to establish those kind of categories, don't we? That's, scriptures don't allow it. Here he doesn't allow it at all, does he? These guys are lovers of God. This guy isn't. And the implication is, you're not this, you're on the clock. You're not this, you may look like it, you may act like it, but in your heart you know. Then there's this. And this is where you're headed, if you're not that. Because that's what Spirit, Holy Spirit, works in people's lives as he's changing them. This, on the other hand, is the other side of the coin. It's a stunning picture. It's a stunning contrast. Two categories, not three. And you don't find that third category anywhere in the scriptures. Two kingdoms, exactly. Same thing. Certainly, verse 17, for he was numbered among us and was allotted and, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Is no different from what John says in 1 John when he says they went out from us to what? Prove they were never of us because if they would have been out with us, of us, they would have stayed with us. They never would have left us. He says, well, Judas proved he wasn't of them. If you jump later on, uh, skipping over the rest of the, of the stuff about Matthias, um, To 21, or not, not to Matthias, but just the Psalms, I mean. Verse 21, So one of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from baptism... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, that's talking about Matthias still. Uh, let's jump down um, to verse 24. We'll just pick up, there, pick up there because the start of a sentence. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts... And by the way, when he says, You, Lord... Almost universally throughout the scripture, throughout the New Testament, the word Lord like that is referencing Jesus. They're praying to Jesus. 
just as, as a, uh, it's not an aside, but an aside for our discussion. They're praying to Jesus here. Uh, most likely that's who, who is on their minds they're praying. The, the Jesus who has ascended and is sitting at the right hand of the Father. <clears throat> said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from uh, 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 from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Did you catch what, what Peter just said in his prayer? Did you catch it? Should have. From which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Does that sound a little bit like Demas? He left me, Paul said, because he what? Loved this present world. That was his place. Ultimately, he showed his place. Judas, more starkly, turned from Jesus to show his place, and it wasn't with the people he guided. It was hell. His place was hell. Now, it's really important that we consider Judas at this point. I think it's absolutely important that we consider Judas at this point because the discussion we have here is this discussion that was so, I mean, it was so clear to them because it just happened. But we don't want to sanitize it. It's a discussion with regard to who is a lover of God and who isn't, right? Who's a lover of God and who isn't? We've got the 120 established, lovers of God. Now we have this person, Judas. And before we jump off Judas, because, because remember I said there's only two categories, it's important we look at Judas for a second. I find a study of Judas pretty stunning. Judas decided to be a guide to those who were going to arrest Jesus and said he'd kiss him to identify him in the dark. And he negotiated with the leaders and they decided to give him what? 30 pieces of silver, right? So he got the 30 pieces of silver, right? I mean, that was the negotiated fee. Took him to Jesus, kissed Jesus on the cheek. They arrested Jesus. And what was Judas' response? What? He was upset. He grieved. Did he not? Could you say, could one say legitimately, Judas was devastated? Well, we'll get to that. Could one say that he was devastated by this? At this point in time, before we get to what Tom said, could we also not say that's a pretty legitimate response? That's a pretty appropriate response? That's a good response? Of this point, that's a really good response. The problem was, as, as Tom said, it was a worldly sorrow. In other words, this sorrow did not lead to repentance. Quite to the contrary, it led to hopelessness. Not sure hope in Christ who forgives, but it leads to, it led him to absolute hopelessness and death as he killed himself. Now, why do I bring Judas up? Because couple things that I think are really interesting. 
can I just talk about repentance for a second and grieving and sorrow? Because the scriptures talk about those things pretty strongly. Can I just say, when Judas led the people to arrest Jesus, he sold Jesus out. Is that correct? He sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. He sold him out. And probably, he, in his thinking, probably for his own neck, too. But he sold him out. Isn't that the definition of sin? We're selling out Jesus? Isn't that the very definition of sin? Yes! Or description, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's the core. Sin is like selling out Jesus for something else. Trading Jesus for something else. Isn't that what it is? And yet, what's really scary, if I may put it this way, is when Judas sold out Jesus, he grieved. When we sell out Jesus, what does that look like? I'm just, I'm, you don't have to answer. I'm just asking a question. What does that look like? When we sin, what does that look like? It's kind of scary when you start looking at Judas, who's not a lover of God, and he is grieving mightily. Now, it results in death. I say this because when I think about Judas, I think about so often, I, I, I see people, and I, when I talk to people so often, you know, they, they claim to be saved. They, they say, yeah, I sinned. And, and it's like, yeah, I sinned. I, I asked Jesus to forgive me. Oh, really? How long ago? Oh, just, yeah, just a couple seconds ago. It's like there's no grieving anywhere. There's no brokenness. There's no anything. It's like some sort of data set. Like, oh, I'm one day late on, on renewing the, the, the um, renewal on my car license. It's like the same level, isn't it? Oh, man, I screwed up. I've got to hop online and correct it. And pay, put my credit card in and get my, get my renewal set up again. My license set up again. Isn't that the way a lot of repentance even looks like? Is that really repentance? Because the Bible talks about sorrow. Doesn't it? Godly sorrow leads to repentance, the Bible says, doesn't it? So No sorrow. What's leading us to repentance? <laughs> I just find the study of this non- lover of God and his grieving scary to me. To me. Because I find so often my repentance is just like working off of a data set. Well, I know God says that's wrong, so I better repent and then I'll move on. What? You know, that, you know, what, that, you know what that tells me when I respond that way? It tells me I don't love Jesus. Because <laughs> I understood Jesus and was fellowshipping with Jesus and praying with one accord and, and connecting with, with the truth about Jesus and, and meditating on the kingdom and meditating on the, on the uh, commands and prohibitions and, and, and promises of God. If I'm meditating on these things, what, you know what happened when I sin? When the Spirit reveals it to me, you know what happened? You know, the Old Testament captures it pretty well, doesn't it? What do they do in the Old Testament? They tore their clothes and put ashes, in sack, uh, put ashes on, on their head and put on sackcloth. I mean, it's, it's a picture, but it should be a picture of what's going on inside, right? But too often, it's like, no, I'm just running with the data and got to correct it and move on. That's not the way the scriptures describe it. Which draws into question... And challenges me, I'm just saying it, I'm talking about me now, okay? This challenges me. 
Lover of God, Judas. I'm challenged by that. I'm convicted by that. Before church, I said the lowest, didn't I? I am so looking forward to getting together Wednesday and praying. I want to pray. This challenges me. I, I look at the text and I'm like, wait a second, Steve. Are you like that? Is, is there any indication of the first part of this passage that's you? It's challenging to me. It's convicting. This week, I've been devastated by this. I've wrestled with this. Is that me? There's only two categories. Is that me or am I like Judas? I'm kind of... Yeah, I'll betray Jesus. Yeah, I'll, I'll betray Jesus for this, or I'll betray Jesus for that, because I consider what that thing, whatever it is, I consider it valuable. 30 pieces of silver. That make sense? I consider that valuable. And then my repentance is like nothing. Too often. It's like nothing. It's like words. Empty words. But lovers of God... Judas, lovers of God, Judas. And the ultimate end of the Judas character is he goes to his place. Wow, that's pretty scary. And yet God promised in a little bit the Holy Spirit will come upon you with power. Now, if we're truly saved people, we have that power. We understand, according to the Scriptures, that even to save people, we still betray Jesus, don't we? Oh, yeah, we do. Right? We know we do. Peter did, didn't he? John Mark did, didn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Paul, he says it very clearly in, in Romans chapter 7, right? I mean, it's there. The difference is, if I may go to, to Romans 7 again, this, again, is a picture of a lover of God, right? What happens with Paul? Paul recognizes, my goodness, the very things I should do, I don't do, and the very things I know I shouldn't do, those are the things I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Sounds like he's grieving, doesn't it? Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free? I hate this. This is what Paul's saying. And he goes on and says, Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus. And, and then he reaches a height of, of praise. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. See, it's a always rejoicing, always grieving, isn't it? Always rejoicing. That's a lover of God. So certainly we, we struggle, we fail, but but Lovers of God do what? They hate it and they repent and they grieve over their sin and they rejoice over the one who is forgiven and they just, it just continues to grow. I mean, this is the apostle Paul and the depths of his grieving are dramatic and the depths of his praise are dramatic. Why? Not because he's doing it, but because the Spirit's at work in him. He's a lover of God. Lot said there, we got to close. But I would just 
encourage us with a very uncomfortable question. That I ask myself this all the time. I'll just be honest with you. This is me. I ask myself, I wrestle with this all the time. Am I Theophilus? Am I? Am I Judas? Am I a lover of God or am I not? Am I a lover of God or am I Demas? Which is especially poignant this week. I don't know if you heard, there was a gentleman by the name of a pastor by the name of Josh Harris, Joshua Harris. I don't know if you heard the story. Joshua Harris wrote a book way back in the 80s called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. If you remember the book, maybe some of you read the book. Um, and then he wrote several other books, became a pastor at 31. And just recently, he walked away from Christianity. Just a week and a half ago. <laughs> Completely walked away from Christianity. Has totally denied it all on, on, on his uh, feeds. He's done. He's done with Christianity completely. Walked away. It's troubling. A uh, variety of variety of reasons why. Um, they're very troubling. Yeah, that's exactly what people are saying. Kiss Christianity goodbye. Yes. Um, sounds like Judas to me, doesn't it? Looked like it for a while. Walked away. This troubles me, friends. It troubles me. Not for Joshua's sake, for mine. Am I a lover of God? Am I Theophilus? Am I Judas? Am I Demas? Are we, Acts 2, 42-47, are we the churches in Asia? Important questions. Uncomfortable questions. The point is what does the evidence say about us? We must not be flippant about this. I think we need to pray. And we need to ask God to help us. Help us to learn. Help us to taste and see. Help us to understand. Help us to worship. Help us to long for his kingdom. Help us to long more than anything else for his promises expectantly. Help us to glorify him and how we, how we respond to him. To change us. To draw us close. Knowing that at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is that we have his righteousness. Amen? When we have his righteousness, things do change according to the scriptures. He is a powerful redeemer. He's a redeemer that changes lives. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. We are people who desperately want to establish a third category. We are people who desperately want to say that we're not like Judas. And yet, find the teaching and the descriptions of lovers of God too often being radically different from us. When push comes to shove, many of us may find ourselves saying we're more like, like Demas, more like Judas, more like Ananias and Sapphira, more like Achan, 
more like the churches of Asia. than we are like lovers of God. And yet the same Spirit that worked in these people works in us. So Lord, I pray you'll change us according to your promises. Change our longings, our hopes, our dreams, our desires so they will be your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Draw us close. Help us to know you deeply and intimately. Pray that we will be vessels that are made for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.